It's the Kim Munson Show, analyzing the most important stories. An early childhood taxing district? What on earth is that? The latest in politics and world affairs. I don't think that we should be passing legislation that is so complicated that people kind of throw up their hands and say, I can't understand that. Today's current opinions and ideas. And it's not fair just because you're a big business that you get a break on this and the little guy doesn't. Is it freedom or is it force? Let's have a conversation. And welcome to the Kim Munson Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You're each treasured, you're valued, you have purpose today. Strive for excellence. Take care of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your body. My friends, we were made for this moment. Thank you to the team. I work with a great team. That's producer Joe, producer Luke, and Rachel, Nicole, Zach, Echo, Charlie, all the people here at Crawford Broadcasting. Uh, Just really blessed to work with great people. Check out our website. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter, and you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. And uh, thank you to all of you who support us. We are an independent voice, and we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you should not have to force people to do it. Uh, I am traveling here over the next few days, and so for today's show... We have decided to pre-record some shows, and I have a very special guest for both our number one and our two. Our number one is Rob Nadelson. You know him. He is an expert on the Constitution. He has an excellent book regarding the original Constitution, what it said and what it meant. And so he's uh, just well-known. He uh, has been in academia for many years as a law professor, uh, former law professor. And we never have enough time with Rob Nadelson. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to have a more in-depth conversation with him. Rob Nadelson, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to be back with you again, Kim. Thanks for having me on. Well, and you have been writing a lot uh, for the Epic Times, and uh, this has been pretty exciting for you, hasn't it? Yes, it is. You know, I've been writing op-eds ever since I was, I think, 15 years old. I was paid for my first column when I was 19, but I've never had a regular gig before. I mean, it's always been a matter of, you, you know, you submit something and then you wait, you wait for the rejections to roll in. But the Epic Times is interested in publishing my stuff as often as I want to send it to them. Um, so I give them a, a column about once a week, and they're good enough to print it. Well, and that is uh, really, um, really great. And they, I think that the Epic Times is really working towards journalistic integrity. They certainly have the reporting division uh, and then also uh, opinion pieces, which they explain <laughs> that there is a difference and people understand that. Uh, but I wanted to, you've done a series which is fascinating. And it is what's wrong with the universities and how to fix it. You have a part one, two, three, and four. And my, we are seeing uh, kind of the veil coming off on what has been happening in academia. I had talked with someone who was in uh, development at a university, and she said that after uh, the Christmas holidays, her phone would ring off the hook after the kids had come uh, come home from college, maybe their first year, and uh, sitting around the 
thanks or excuse me well the thanksgiving table or the christmas or hanukkah and and parents were saying what are you teaching my children and i thought that was so interesting so what would you say to that uh, rob nadelson well first um a lot of people were surprised to see the anti-semitism and the truly perverse support for a terrorist organization that appeared at the universities i was not surprised I spent 31 years at universities, 25 years as a full-time professor, and six years as an adjunct uh, at various Colorado colleges um, and and one college in another state while I was practicing law. And I could see the poison developing. It's been quite a long time uh, going on. Now, Alan Dershowitz argues that it has been made worse by the uh, universities signing on to their diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda, and I'm sure he's right about that, but it's been building, as I said, for a very long time. One of the things that people are realizing is that all this jabbering about social justice and racial justice and so forth is just that. It's jabber. What has that got to do with supporting an organization that carried out the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust and did so in a such a horrific manner as to match and perhaps even in some cases exceed that which the Nazis did. Obviously, that's got nothing to do with racial justice or social justice. It has to do with tearing down Western civilization, and it has to do with hate. And unfortunately, that virus is very, very deeply embedded in our university systems. It pains me to say it because I gave so many years of my life to higher education. But we have got to we have got to act to uh, to expurgate uh, that virus, or else we're not going to have a workable higher education system. How do you think that uh, professorship tenure plays into, as you mentioned, kind of this this poison? That's a complicated question, Kim, because when you talk to people, you usually get. Um, you know, automatic reactions for or against tenure. My view is somewhere in between, and it's an odd position, which is that tenure is fully justified if it's if it's used appropriately. Tenure is valuable in ensuring uh, the integrity of research, the protection of people speaking out with unpopular views and so forth. However, um, in many of our colleges and universities, tenure is given partly as a political reward. So, Rob Nadelson, how would you say that the tenure of professors plays into this poison that we are seeing on our, in our universities and our colleges? Well, you know, Kim, um, when you talk about tenure, you tend to get responses that are wholly one way or another. Tenure is absolutely necessary or tenure is useless. And my own view is somewhere in between. I think tenure is appropriate when it's properly used. It's appropriate because it protects professors who do controversial research, who express uncontroversial, who express controversial views. It's not appropriate when it's given out partly as a political reward or where there really are no standards uh, for tenure. We've seen uh, cases, for example, at the University of Colorado, where where uh, a professor who whose work was obviously substandard. Uh, uh, wound up getting tenure and holding it for many years because he pretended to be an Indian. Uh, and um, and uh, when I applied for tenure, I, this, 
<laughs> there were not too many Republicans on our faculty, but two of us applied for tenure at the same time. So what they did is they changed the tenure standards to make them more difficult. <laughs> Fortunately, both of us qualified anyway. But if it's, if it's appropriately and honestly applied, it's valuable. Now, what has happened, of course, is that given the political uh, poison in the universities, uh, tenure goes to people who really don't deserve it, who really don't do research, who were there for political purposes. And if they don't do research, good research before tenure, they don't do it after. They spend their time agitating and trying to tear things down. And so in that respect, uh, tenure can aggravate the situation. So as you are writing these um, series for the Epic Times regarding how, you know, what is happening. So explain, okay, I, I, you know, I'm a mom and I'm mom and dad. They uh, want to send their kids to college so that they, you know, the perception used to be kids go to college, they get out, they get a good job, it's good for their lives, they have uh, better earning opportunities. That's not so much the case anymore, but yet I think people still think that. And it used to be that families would save to send kids to college. Kids would earn scholarships. With the whole student loan debt thing, that changes the dynamics as well. How would you address all that, Rob Nadelson? The number one priority, and I realize this is a difficult one to accomplish, is to get the federal government out of higher education. Uh, the federal government has had a corrupting effect on federal education, uh, on higher education in several ways. And I'll address the issue, for example, of student loans in a second. I received an email today from a former uh, medical school professor at a leading medical school uh, in the area of pathology. And one of the points he made was that science has become corrupted at the universities, that at, at uh, many universities, you've got an inside group that's funded by the federal government. They've got a particular orthodoxy that they promote because that's the federal orthodoxy, and then they try to suppress everybody else. When I was um, when I was um, at the University of Montana, <laughs> I developed a um, kind of a pseudo French maxim based on the uh, famous French maxim "Cherchez la femme, look for the woman." My maxim was "Cherchez la federal program." That is to say, if there was something really stupid that was going on or that didn't make any sense, there was probably federal money behind it. Now, the student loan program aggravated this enormously by encouraging a lot of people to go to college. I mean, you're giving t teenagers free money or what appears to be free money. It, en it encourages a lot of people who go to college who really shouldn't go to college. As, as a result of the demand, the universities jack their tuition up. They add all kinds of uh, needless staff, including uh, diversity, affirmative action, equity type staff, which increase the leftward movement of the university. They add uh, professors in kind of questionable uh, disciplines like queer studies, uh, and which, which again further moves the university to the left. And eventually, you've got universities that are just echo chambers for, for extreme left-wing ideology. Uh, the federal government also, as suggested by my uh, correspondent who was the pathology professor, co they corrupt research. And so um, higher education and politics really don't really don't mix. The top priority has to be to terminate all federal programs involving he higher education, except maybe in a case of a few defense contracts, 
where it's clearly necessary for carrying out a power that the federal government receives under the Constitution. But if those contracts are terminated, then that gravy train of federal money goes away. And so yes. this and will all, be difficult also, to do. Orthodoxy. Right. Um, it, it, it is difficult to do. It may require an Article 5 convention uh, to amend the Constitution to do it, but it's imperative because otherwise uh, what we're going to be, the universities are just going to become, eat as well, they're going to remain poison factories, and um, that, that, does, that does nobody any good. The other thing is that there's an economic issue here. When you've got a lot of students going to college for whom that is really not the best choice, Either they should be getting jobs or should be going to trade school or whatever. When you do that, you've got this large class of people who are dead weight on the economy. They're not really producing for the economy. The students who are in college and those unnecessary professors who are teaching them, they could be doing something, uh, something productive for the, benefit, uh, for the benefit of all of us. It's also politically destructive because what you've got is this huge... Uh, political center, which is distorting the American uh, political scene. I mean, some people ask, why did why did President Biden try to forgive all that student debt, which really amounted to passing that student debt onto people who work for a living? And the answer is, it's a political payoff. It, the universities serve as powerful bastions. Uh, for uh, garnering votes for the National Democratic Party. That's a, that's a distorting effect on American politics. So as hard as it's going to be to get the federal government away from education, it is absolutely imperative that it be done. Okay, Rob Nadelson, this, these pieces are so important that you have written at the Epic Times, uh, What's Wrong with the Universities and How to Fix It, Part 1, 2, 3, and 4. And so we're going to continue the conversation with Rob Nadelson. He is the author of the book, The Original Constitution, What It Actually Said and Met. And we get to do this because we have great sponsors. One of those is Hooters Restaurants. And they have five locations, Loveland, Aurora, Lone Tree, Westminster, and Colorado Springs. Lunch specials Monday through Friday. I do love their fish and chips. And also Wednesdays are Wings Day. You buy 20 wings, you get an additional uh, 10 for free. How I got to know them, it is a big story about freedom and free markets and capitalism. And PBIs, those politicians, bureaucrats, and interested parties that uh, are trying to bump up against um, free markets and capitalism. So, again, Hooters Restaurants, great partner of the show. And then the Roger Mangan State Farm Insurance Team uh, does great work. They want you to feel safe and well-served and to understand your insurance coverage. And no, their office will respond to your call or text 24 hours a day. For that 24-hour peace of mind, call Roger Mangan at 303-795-8855. Like a good neighbor, Roger Mangan's team is there. Rosie's doing it. So is Yvonne. Same with Lori. Michelle's been at it since February of last year. Jody started the year before that. And guess what? They're all saving by doing so. What's that? Oh, the doing part? They're using the Drive Safe and Save app from State Farm. Then they're saving up to 30% and more on their auto insurance. How about you? Are you ready to get at it and save? Call Roger Mangan State Farm Insurance at 303-795-8855. Don't delay. Call Roger Mangan State Farm Insurance at 303-795-8855 today. 
Focused and wise marketing is essential for your success, especially during tough economic times. If you love the Kim Munson Show, strive for excellence and understand the importance of engaging in the battle of ideas that is raging in America. Then talk with Kim about partnership, sponsorship opportunities. Email Kim at KimMunson.com. Kim focuses on creating relationships with individuals and businesses that are tops in their fields. So they are the trusted experts listeners turn to when looking for products or services. Kim personally endorses each of her sponsors. Again, reach out to Kim at KimMunson.com. It's Friday! And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. And you can email me at Kim at Kim Munson.com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice. And we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you should not have to force people to do it. I am traveling over the next few days and uh, have pre-recorded the show for this Friday. First, our guest is Rob Nadelson. You know him. He is an expert on the Constitution. He's written an important book, The Original Constitution, What It Actually Said and Met. And uh, we're talking about some pieces that has been published in the Epic Times, What's Wrong with the Universities and How to Fix It. So we talked about the toxic culture, uh, kind of the poison culture in many of these universities and colleges. But I wanted to ask you about governance. In your second piece on this, you said the dictatorial governance has been superseded by faculty governance, and most faculty members bear little resemblance to the legendary teachers of the past. So tell us a little bit about that, Rob. Sure. In the first installment, I said, you know, let's look at the university model. Get together a bunch of adolescent and post-adolescent kids, highly charged with with hormones, uh, put put them all in one place, have them live together often in co-ed dorms, uh, sprinkle in a few grown-ups, but people who have no training in in um, uh, in human psychology or in human behavior, uh, who themselves are often resentful of the outside world. Add to that a bunch of administrators who just want to keep their job where nobody can really make a decision. And I ask, given that situation, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and the answer is everything could go wrong. And by the way, of course, you've also got radical political activists who come into this toxic soup in order to take advantage of it. So um, I then mentioned there have been traditionally two ways of governing universities. One is kind of the dictatorial top-down measure, and the other is faculty governance. And until recently, we mostly had uh, we mostly had university dictators. Not a very good system, but at least they were able usually to maintain control of this toxic mix. But when you went to faculty governance and the faculty itself didn't didn't really, you know, measure up in many ways to the legendary faculty members of the past. Well, they they can't you know they can't control the mess. In fact, they're kind of kind of uh, intimidated by it. And so the fa- the governance problem at universities or the government governance defects at universities tends to make things worse. I wanted to emphasize also that I don't advocate dictatorial governance, and I gave an ex- a story of how. Uh, a, a, a very distinguished lawyer I knew when he was when he was a law student 
was told by the dean of the law school, you better not work for a particular political candidate I don't like or I'll throw you out of the law school. I mean, that's not a very good model. That's not a very good model either. So um, really the the, the model itself has to be changed. What universities are themselves has to be changed, not just how we govern them. And what would you recommend that we change it to? Well, you know, I believe in um, decentralization and what's called organic growth. In other words, allow things to happen naturally. Uh, one thing we need to do, and I mentioned taking federal money out of the mix, but we also need to privatize universities where we possibly can. There's no reason for law schools, for example. I worked at a law school. There's no reason for law schools to be run by the government. Law is a uh, very well-paying job. Uh, students can should pay their own freight if they're going to uh, be be lawyers and not you know not charge hardworking people who are going to earn less than them uh, for the charge of their education. And the same thing is true of other vocational and professional schools. They really should be privatized. Secondly, large state universities should be broken up into their constituent campuses, made self-governing and allowed to um, allowed to uh, uh, compete with each other. Distance learning is something that a lot of people talk about. It has its advantages. It has its disadvantages. One of its advantages, frankly, is anything you can do to avoid a concentration such as of, of, uh, of young people, such as I mentioned, all in one place is, is actually a good thing. Um, I point out also that, that uh, sports are misused at universities, that uh, when you root for the University of Colorado Buffs, for example, you may be rooting for a team that most of whose members really don't come from Colorado, and it's kind of a quasi-professional team that's used to try to raise money from donors. Um, and so there, um, there, and, and one, one other I'll mention, there were several others in the article, I'll mention one other, and that is that uh, state officials and local officials have to enforce the law. Uh, there has been kind of an unspoken view that universities should somehow be free of the laws that apply to the rest of us. So you've got a bunch of thugs who take over a building or shout down everybody else and uh, violate everybody else's rights. Uh, the idea is, well, you know, the campus authorities should handle the th- themselves. The problem is the campus authorities don't handle everything themselves, and those people whose rights are violated have the right to have them protected. And so one of the recommendations I make is the, the law should be enforced on the university campuses just like it's enforced everywhere else. Well, that does make sense. That, so this brings up another question that in, it's not only on universities and colleges, but also in America, and that is free speech. And I was talking with someone, this was regarding a campaign it was for a school district that had two different tax increases on the ballot. And uh, at kind of at the very last minute, apparently the school district designated an area on at least one of the campuses as free speech and then immediately put up election information uh, in favor of these tax increases. Now, those of us that were opposed, I guess if we would have known about it, we could have been in that free speech zone as well. But I don't think that's truly American, that we have to have no, free no. speech zones. No. One of the early points I make at the articles is that 
there was this myth out there that universities traditionally were about free discussion and, you know, uh, free exchange of ideas, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, I point out historically, if you look, you look at universities' history, dated, dated back to the Middle Ages, they have mostly been centers of orthodoxy and intolerance. And the, uh, the, the notion of the university as a place for the open, exchange, open uh, exchange of ideas is really, you know, it's been the true in some times and places, but it's not the dominant history of universities. And universities have been very, very strong in promoting particular political views. I mean, when I, I saw it, um, I saw it when I was at Cornell University. Uh, there was some mass demonstrations going on against the Vietnam War, and Cornell University basically closed down classes so the students could go demonstrate against the war. I mean, here you have a university effectively taking a position. Similarly, the university was giving academic credit for people who went out uh, and did various projects, included, including publishing a Trotskyite communist newspaper. So universities have, have, are very, very deeply involved in politics. Uh, when I was at the University of Montana, there was a, uh, a, a tax referendum which came up every 10 years, and the universities were active in promoting that. And so uh, that's kind of what they do. Um, I don't think there's a way ultimately to prevent that. What you can do is you can minimize it through the other things I suggest, but it's absolutely imperative that dissenters have their right of free speech protected. Even if the university is out there p pushing a particular point of view, uh, dissenters should have the right to, uh, to dissent for that and to do so actively and loudly, especially on state campuses. Well, so I, I want to, I think, go back to something and that you mentioned the sports team and that there have been uh, people that have graduated from different universities, universities and colleges. Uh, they've gone on to be quite successful. Uh, they've liked to give money to their university. They like the sports team. They like the tailgating. They like all that. What would you say to that? Well, I would say don't give a dime to your university. I mean... This is a highly unusual one. Uh, and even if you earmark that money for certain purposes, they'll find a way to, to misappropriate it. The uh, University of Colorado is a great example. They, they, um, uh, <laughs> the campus is almost all left-wing, so a group of conservative donors said, well, we'll establish kind of a, a center for conservative thought. Well, uh, they did that, but that means that the university can divert its money uh, to promoting leftist thought. And furthermore, when one of the visiting professors at the Center for Conservative Thought uh, started advising former President Trump, that person was instantly relieved of his class assignments and, and, and basically ghettoized. So they will always find a way to misuse the donations. There are institutions, uh, if, if you want to promote higher education, if you want to promote the advancement of human learning, and you want to do that through financial contributions, that's great, but the universities are not, not the way to funnel the money. Now, this is going to so, seem self-serving since I work with the Independence Institute, but there are these state-based think tanks, cons conservative and free market think tanks all over the country that are doing much of the same work universities are or are supposed to be doing 
They're educating young people they, uh, through their internship programs. They're doing studies of various kinds. They're doing research. They're advancing the, the frontier of human knowledge. And they're doing so uh, from a free market and um, a conservative point of view. And they're also doing it on a financial shirt tail. In other words, they, they, they don't have that much money. Um, somebody, somebody told me, well, he, he wanted to give the money to Hillsdale College, conservative college in Michigan. I said, that's great, but you realize Hillsdale College has a $1 billion endowment stored up. Uh, we at the Independence Institute, our budget is, you know, insignificant compared to that, and we will use the money far more effectively. What is true of the Independence Institute is true of, of, uh, of conservative and free market think tanks all over the country who will use your money much more wisely than the universities will. Well, and I think that's uh, very important that people need to really think about where their money goes uh, and certainly to be donating to different colleges and universities that then are teaching children. I mean, this was my same experience uh, with one of my kids is came home from CSU, political science, espousing the value of uh, one world government with nine judges. That, Rob, is what got me involved in everything. And I'm thinking... I'm thinking I'm working my tail off to pay professors to teach that crap, if you will. And I, I uh, ended up we I did an intervention. We got uh, got through all that. But I'm like, who was who was the one that was really not very smart here? And that was me for working my tail off to pay people to be uh, teaching that kind of stuff. And so that was my own personal experience. Uh, Kim, we had a very similar situation with, a, I'm not going to identify the person, but with a, uh, a family member of ours who went to the University of Denver, came from a conservative family uh, in a, uh, located elsewhere, uh, good values, outstanding young person, uh, came out ideologically and, and ruined and ruined as to character as well. That was the University of Denver. And uh, the University of Denver's typical, I think, any uh, any intervention to bring that person back, or is that still the situation? No, that that person is now out living a, a lifestyle that I certainly would not think would be consistent with God's values. Okay, okay. I'm talking with Rob Nadelson, and uh, I am traveling, and so we've decided to pre-record some of these shows. And Rob Nadelson, we never have enough time with him, so I thought, oh, this will be great. We'll do the whole hour. And we get to do this because we have amazing sponsors. One of those great sponsors is Karen Levine. There are always opportunities in changing markets, and the metro real estate market is no exception. That is why you need to work with seasoned REMAX Alliance realtor Karen Levine when you buy your home, sell your home, consider the opportunities of a new build, or explore investment properties. Rising interest rates are spurring creativity, innovation, and opportunity in the real estate and mortgage markets. Kim Munson highly recommends award-winning REMAX realtor Karen Levine. Call Karen Levine today at 303-877-7516 for answers to all your real estate questions. That's 303-877-7516. Boson Law fights for clients who've been injured or family members who have lost a loved one due to the careless, reckless, or wrongful conduct of others. Whether injured in a car accident, suffered an injury due to a product or bad pharmaceutical drug, or need help fighting for medical care and benefits following an accident at work. Don't go it alone 
and uninformed. Boston Law is the law firm you need in your corner. Time is of the essence with any personal injury claim. Call 303-999-9999 to schedule your complimentary consultation. That number again is 303-999-9999. Call now. You'd like to get in touch with one of the sponsors of The Kim Munson Show, but you can't remember their phone contact or website information. Find a full list of advertising partners on Kim's website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim, M-O-N-S-O-N, dot com. And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. And you can email me at Kim at Kim com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice and we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you should not have to force people to do it. Did want to mention that you go over to our website, a climateconversation.com, and you can actually view our documentary there. It is a very very thoughtful, uh, questioning, Socratic questioning of these different issues regarding climate and just having an honest conversation about it. And uh, as we're preparing for Christmas and Hanukkah, the kids coming home from college, it might be a good thing to watch a climate conversation because you might have a conversation about that. Pleased to have on the line with me Rob Nadelson, and uh, you know him. He is an expert on the Constitution. Excellent book, the original Constitution, what it actually said and met and that could be a great gift actually for uh, Christmas or Hanukkah so I would suggest that he is writing regularly at the Epic Times and he just published this piece at the Epic Times uh, regarding let's see the exact title is when a court vetoes the people it happened in Montana Rob Nadelson what happened in Montana well, first, let me start with Colorado. I, several years ago, I did a, a book on the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. That's the part of the Colorado Constitution that is supposed to allow us to vote on tax increases. And I noticed it in, in, the, in the course of my research how the Colorado Supreme Court, whenever they got a case involving the Taxpayer Bill of Rights or Tabor, always found a way to damage Tabor. And that surprised me because the Colorado Supreme Court, while tending liberal, is, you know, is generally within the mainstream of, of, of Supreme Courts. I mean, they, they, don't get too, they don't get too wild, and sometimes a conservative can actually win a case there. Um, the, uh, the, the story of the Montana Supreme Court is, is different, and, it's, uh, and, and a great example is the subject of that article. What has happened in Montana is that the court has actually set itself up as having a veto power over whatever constitutional amendments the people choose to pass. So, uh, and, and they exercise that veto selectively. So if you've got a conservative constitutional amendment like one allowing the people to vote on taxes or de- doing something about the, about the uh, property tax assessment crisis, which Montana's facing just like Colorado, uh, if, you, if you offer an amendment like that, they'll strike it down. But if you offer a liberal amendment, they'll let it pass. And the rationales always switch back and forth. Well, this is a scary development because a primary limit or control on a, a judiciary is the ability of the people to 
uh, to, to amend the Constitution. We've had several cases, for example, in United States history, where the Supreme Court issued an opinion. It was the widespread view that that opinion was wrong, and so we passed constitutional amendments overriding it. And that has happened in, in many states, too. So, but, but when you have a case where the Supreme Court says, you know, if you try to overrule us or you try to adopt a constitutional amendment we don't like, we're just going just to strike it down, you have a problem. Montana is traditionally not a particularly conservative state, but it has become a conservative state recently, and the Supreme Court has remained left to the left of liberal. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to essentially uh, prevent the voters from getting their way. Uh, and that is, that's an unfortunate proposition. I mentioned in the article also that Montana is not the only state where some of this is going on. You see it in Oregon. You see it in Pennsylvania, but Montana is the most extreme example of a court that has set itself up with an absolute veto over what the people want to do. Wow. And so what's going to happen with this, do you think, uh, Rob Nadelson? That's a real, that's a good question. I've been, I've been commissioned by the Frontier Institute, which is the Independence Institute's sister organization in, uh, in Montana, to do an analysis of the court. Uh, and then after I finish the analysis, we'll probably do one where we analyze what can be done and explore, you know, what the options are, including changing how the elections for the court work or changing, otherwise changing how justices are appointed, uh, altering salaries, um, uh, changing rules that apply to the court. So I don't have I don't have a whole set of recommendations to make yet, but we'll be gathering the experience of Montana and also the experience of other states to find out what works and what doesn't work. I think one thing that doesn't work is the Colorado system where you've got retention elections, there's no party designation, and judges just get retained all the time no matter how dreadful their records are. So we're probably not going to recommend the Colorado model, but there are models in other states that work better. Okay, I'm writing down all these different questions. So first question, the Colorado model, it is, well, you you said dreadful. It is very difficult. You know, I do a a voter's guide each election cycle, and I consistently hear from listeners, what about these judges? And it's difficult to get information on them. Here's, Here's the thing about this. You know, almost everybody doesn't like political parties. I mean, we get really fed up with political parties. And so when, when people in a state like Colorado or Montana say, we're going to elect our judges, but we're going to do it by nonpartisan election, the automatic reaction is, you know, that's a good idea to keep the party politics out of it. What it really does, Kim, is it prevents information from getting to the voters. Because if the parties have a nominee, then you can tell, they can tell you why that person should be elected, and the other party can tell you why that person should not be elected. You've got a free exchange of information. So as much as we all like to bash political parties, they serve this valuable purpose of providing information to the voters, and the voters can sort it out. Um, but nonpartisan elections 
what they do is they stop up that information. They really don't make the process apolitical. The process remains political, okay? But it's political behind closed doors so that nobody but the insiders know what the politics are. So what you see on the ballot is Judge Smith. You don't know whether Judge Smith is a liberal or a Democrat, has a good judicial record. Excuse me, a liberal or a conservative or a Republican or a Democrat has a good judicial record or a badge. Nobody tells you. And and the lawyers usually won't tell you publicly because they're subject to the discipline of the state Supreme Court. So I suspect that some of our suggestions will involve partisan elections. And I think that's which, by the way, have long worked in some states. New York built the finest judiciary in the country on partisan elections with certain safeguards. Uh, But um, so they probably involve partisan elections. And it might involve also taking lawyer discipline away from the highest court in the state so that lawyers are not afraid to speak out about whatever problems that they happen to see. Okay. well, and uh, we've seen actually I think I know from the 90s, maybe even before, there was a movement by the radical activist leftists here in America to actually start to really influence um, which judges got on the bench and the judiciary. And it took yeah. me a while to connect the dots on that, uh, Rob Nadelson. Yeah, the dots are the dots to be connected are when the courts became political, uh, they became pol- subject to political activity. And the political activity in nonpartisan elections goes on behind the scenes or at least you don't really notice it. So for example, in the Montana elections, uh, basically the Montana Trial Lawyers Association, that is the plaintiff's bar, uh, this is a little bit of an overstatement, but it gets the point across, they basically bought the court. They, they, they put together vast amounts of money and then when somebody was up for re-election, uh, they would promote that person and bash the opponent and the political parties were not permitted to say anything in, in response because it was a nonpartisan election and they weren't allowed to advertise on the issue. So um, nonpartisan elections enable political interests, whether they be on the left or the right, to better capture uh, particular court seats. So, again, um, at some point, maybe next year, uh, after after I finish my second report to the Frontier Institute, we can talk about the recommendations I have for Montana and then examine to what extent they can be, be applied in Colorado. By the way, my law license is in Colorado, okay, not in Montana. That's why I can do this so freely. Um, if When I start making my recommendations in in Colorado, I might have to start looking over my shoulder. <laughs> my, yeah, it, and boy, that's a whole nother question, though, and that is the bar and... Uh, uh, then, you know, taking away attorneys' uh, licenses or threatening to do that if they take a certain stand. What do you say to that? Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, um, we've seen two examples of this. One is in Montana, where the attorney general of the state uh, objected very strongly to the to the overreaching by the state Supreme Court. And an agency of the state Supreme Court has responded by hitting the attorney general with ethics uh, complaints and essentially threatening to pull his license. Uh, on a national level, we've seen this with John Eastman, who was an attorney who would, well, he's not just an attorney, he's actually, was actually one of the nation's leading constitutional scholars and a law, law school dean. He uh, advised the Trump campaign during the dispute over the 2020 election. 
and he now finds himself threatened with uh, California authorities yanking his license away from him. So both those cases highlight highlight uh, the vulnerability of lawyers <clears throat> and why you don't hear more lawyers stand up and say, you know, vote for Judge Smith. He's a really good judge or more even more or even less often vote against Judge Smith. You know, he drinks too much and he doesn't pay attention to the arguments and he rules impulsively. You never hear lawyers say that, even though there are judges like that. And and the reason they don't, of course, is they're they're afraid because their clients are going to be in Judge Smith's court and because their license is controlled by the judicial system. So quick question. Should we get rid of licensure for attorneys? You know, I don't think so, but I think that the I think what we should get rid of is the notion that you have to go to an American Bar Association approved law school in order to get a license. I think that license, you should be allowed to clerk in a law firm, which is what we did in this country for most of our history. You should be allowed to clerk for a law firm to law in a law firm to learn your law and, and then take the bar exam to prove your, your capability. That bar exam should be tough and it should focus on the state law. Um, but I don't think we should do away with licensing altogether. I'm not that libertarian. And I would apply this also to physicians and others because the risks of, of, of incompetence are simply too great. You know, if somebody's an incompetent cake designer, you lose the cake. If somebody's an incompetent uh, uh, lawyer, you can lose all your property. You can wind up in jail. So I think the licensure is important. But I think the licensure has to be put in some agency maybe separate from the state Supreme Court uh, so that uh, so that lawyers have a little bit more freedom in, in criticizing the courts. Okay. I'm talking with Rob Nadelson. He is an expert on the courts, on the Constitution. I uh, did want to mention the USMC Memorial Foundation. They are raising money for the uh, remodel of the Marine Memorial out at Sixth and Colfax. Uh, now that we are into Christmas and Hanukkah season, a great gift would be to purchase a brick that will be on one of the pathways of service to honor your loved one's military service. And you will receive a beautiful certificate. It is a lovely gift and would highly recommend that you check that out. You can do that by going to USMCMemorialFoundation.org. That's USMCMemorialFoundation.org. Another great sponsor of the show is Lauren Levy. If you are 62 or older, a reverse mortgage could be a great tool regarding retirement and estate planning. It is essential to understand the process. Lauren Levy with Polygon Financial Group has nearly 20 years in the mortgage industry and has the experience to answer your questions. Lauren understands that each financial transaction is personal. If you'd like to explore your options on a reverse mortgage, remodel your home, buy a rental property, or move, call Lauren Levy at 303-880-8881. Licensed in 49 states, Kim Monson highly recommends Lauren Levy for all your mortgage needs. Call Lauren at 303-880-8881. All of Kim's sponsors are an inclusive partnership with Kim and are not affiliated with or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the Kim Munson Show and grow your business, contact Kim at her website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Franktown Firearms staff and customers alike are concerned with your safety and ability to shoot well, and that comes from the sense of community that they foster at their shop. The staff doesn't work on commissions from sales, so there won't be any pressure to buy what you don't need. 
They host events like Ladies' Night every first Friday and a Tactical Fun Night every third Friday because they value their community and they understand that selling the most expensive product doesn't help you learn to shoot. Your money goes further at Franktown because they'd rather you to be self-sufficient with what you already own and be proficient in using it. If you're looking for a range and shop that can take you to the next level in your self-defense training, learn how to shoot in realistic scenarios from instructors who have been there, done that. Then look no further than Franktown Firearms. Go to klzradio.com slash franktown. Franktown Firearms, where friends are made. And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. And you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. And uh, we are getting into Christmas, Hanukkah season. Uh, great gift. Another great gift suggestion is the Medal of Honor quote book that you can purchase at the Center for American Values. And it has quotes from many of our Medal of Honor recipients, and it is so inspirational. And I'd highly recommend that you get the book, and then with your children, your grandchildren, uh, choose uh, some of these different Medal of Honor recipients and learn about their lives. It will uh, truly, I think, change the trajectory of some of the things that we're concerned about in our country. On the line with me is Rob Nadelson. Uh, He is an expert on the Constitution. Uh, on the judiciary as well. His uh, very important book is uh, the original Constitution, what it actually said and meant. And so that's also a great gift for Christmas or Hanukkah as well. Rob Nadelson, I've got some questions about the Supreme Court, but I have a question that's been percolating. I just realized you're the perfect person to ask that. And that is through the Prop HH uh, ballot question I had Douglas Bruce on the show, who is the architect of Tabor, Colorado's Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. And one of the things that he said to me is, Kim, how do you change an amendment to the Constitution? I'm like, oh, an amendment to the Constitution. So, Rob Nadelson, all of these detabering and debrucing things that have occurred in Colorado since the passage of Tabor seems like it's unconstitutional. So I have listeners that reach out and they say, why isn't there something that happens in the court on that? What would you say to them? Well, I actually touched on this earlier, Kim. We have a, a line of decisions in the Colorado Supreme Court and to a slightly lesser extent in the Colorado Court of Appeals that are anti-Tabor decisions. And they've simply gutted Tabor. They have make Tabor say things different from what it says. So, for example... Tabor says that when you interpret a law or a tax uh, under the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, you always apply the interpretation, I mean, in cases of doubt, you apply the interpretation that most limits the growth of government. Supreme Court of Colorado doesn't do that. It says, well, no, actually, we're going to say that a law is constitutional unless it's proved unconstitutional beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, that's a different standard than the one prescribed. So they basically just ignore the, the one uh, the, the one prescribed. Uh, another good example is that under Tabor, uh, so-called debrucing, I don't like that term, it's a term that allows, allows a government to spend more than Tabor would allow. Supposedly, a vote to permit that was supposed to expire at the end of four years. So if, for example, you live in the city of Lakewood, as I do, and the city of Lakewood said, you know, we'd like four years of additional spending, 
uh, can we have it? We could vote yes. But then at the end of four years, we get to reconsider that. The Colorado Court of Appeals ruled that once you have a vote like that, it's permanent. And in fact, the Colorado Supreme Court said if such a vote occurred even before Tabor, it acts after Tabor. And so it's, it's, Tabor's been largely gutted by the courts. Now, the, the friends of the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, the usual solution that they have had is to, to litigate. And the result is, of course, they lose case after case after case, and they make the situation worse. I recommended six years ago when I first looked into this that what they really need to do is they need to run a series of voter initiatives. And, you know, you, you're going to have to educate the population on this. It's, you're not going to win simply by putting it on the ballot. You run a series of voting initiatives say, saying to the people, look, you voted for Tabor. The court has made some wrong decisions. We need to restore what you voted for. So please vote for Proposition JJ or whatever it is to to correct the situation. That's what I recommended. I regret that my recommendations have not been uh, followed thus far. And I think <laughs> the situation we face is reflective of the fact that my recommendation has not been followed. Now, I do like your recommendations very much, Rob Nadelson. We've got about five minutes left. And tell us, the Supreme Court will be uh, starting to hear cases again. Is this considered a term? You know, what's all the, the things that uh, everyday people should know? When does this happen? Just tell us a little bit about what to expect. Okay, well, we've said a lot of, um, we've said a lot of depressing things on this show. Let's, let's say an optimistic, a good thing. While this is not a conservative U.S. Supreme Court, as is often claimed, it's probably the best Supreme Court in my lifetime. It is a, uh, a court where either side can win, uh, where you've got both, both sides vigorously represented. Uh, the court will be taking up this term. And by the way, the term begins or the period for the court sitting begins in October, October 1. So it's called... The term we're in now is called the October 2023 term, and that term will not end until next June. So you, all the cases issued uh, through the end of next June will be 2023 term cases, even if they're actually issued in 2024. Uh, we've got a lot of interesting cases coming up. I'm not prepared to discuss all of them today. Let me just mention that two uh, very important issues will be First, the so-called Chevron Doctrine will be under review. This is the doctrine that uh, uh, that always gives the benefit of the doubt to the bureaucracy in the interpretation of an ambiguous statute. Um, the several members of the court had said have said that they don't think that the agency that administers the law should be the one primarily to interpret it because it has a you know, it has a dog in the fight. Uh, and so uh, if the Chevron Doctrine goes, that means the playing field between citizens and administrative agencies will be will be uh, be uh, leveled somewhat. There's also a very important tax case coming up, and it deals with the question of whether the government can tax increases in value of an asset, even though you haven't realized that gain. For example, you buy IBM at uh, 200, and you sell it, and you and you just keep it. You don't sell it, but it's now up to 300. Can government tax that gain, even though you've not sold the property, and you've not gotten any any money from it? Um, 
a piece of legislation was passed in 2017, interestingly enough, by a Republican Congress that allowed the federal government to tax those kinds of gains under some circumstances. And many people believe that's unconstitutional because uh, simply allowing the government to tax somebody's wealth is what the Constitution calls a direct tax, and a direct tax needs to comply with certain constitutional requirements before it can be imposed. So I, I'm interested in this case because I've actually written on what the Constitution means by a direct tax and an indirect tax, spent a lot of time investigating the, his, the, histor- the history behind it, and I, I, I think I've got it right, and we'll see if the court agrees. Boy, this is absolutely fascinating. So, Rob Nadelson, first of all, thank you. Uh, And people can find you at the Epic Times. You're writing on a regular basis there. Really important subjects. It's been really fun to have a whole hour with you. This has been just great. It's been fun. And by the way, you can also read all my stuff without the paywall at the Independence Institute website. That's independenceinstitute.org. Excellent. So again, independenceinstitute.org. So uh, thank you so much, Rob Nadelson, and I wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and uh, we will talk to you in the new year. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and I look forward to it. Thank you. Okay, and again, that is Rob Nadelson. Our quote for the end of the show, I went to Abraham Lincoln, and he said this. He said, the probability that we may fail in the struggle ought not to deter us from the support of a cause we believe to be just. And I chose that because I was thinking about justice and just the whole conversation that we've had with Rob Nadelson. And so, my friends, it is so important that today be grateful, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. My friends, you are not alone. God bless you. God bless America. And as I have said, we have pre-recorded these shows because I'm traveling. And you'll want to stay tuned because we've got another great hour with one of our great uh, sponsors, and that is Jay Davidson. And I don't want no one to cry, but tell them if I don't survive. Views and opinions expressed on KLZ 560 are those of the speaker, commentators, hosts, their guests, and callers. They are not necessarily the views and opinions of Crawford Broadcasting or KLZ Management, employees, associates, or advertisers. KLZ 560 is a Crawford Broadcasting God and Country station. It's the Kim Munson Show, analyzing the most important stories. An early childhood taxing district? What on earth is that? The latest in politics and world affairs. I don't think that we should be passing legislation that is so complicated that people kind of throw up their hands and say, I can't understand that. Today's current opinions and ideas. And it's not fair just because you're a big business that you get a break on this and the little guy doesn't. Is it freedom or is it force? Let's have a conversation.
Indeed. Welcome to our number two of the Kim Munson Show. Thank you so much for listening. You're each treasured. You're valued. You have purpose. Today, strive for excellence. Take care of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your body. My friends, we were made for this moment. Thank you to the team I work with. That's producer Joe, producer Luke, Zach, Echo, Charlie, all the people here at Crawford Broadcasting. Happy Friday to you, producer Joe. Happy Friday, Kim. (laughs) And we're doing something very special for this hour. We are actually pre-recording it with Dr. Douglas Groteis. Uh, you know him. He's, he's the author of 19 books, and he is a Christian philosopher, apologist. Would you say that that's correct, Dr. Douglas Groteis? I'll take it. Okay. That's right. <laughs> and 19 books. I, I can't believe mm-hmm. that. That's, talk about creativity and innovation. Well, I got an early start. My first book came out in 1986, which was called Unmasking the New Age. I was 29 at the time, and it was uh, the right book at the right time. A lot of people read it, got interested in it, and uh, I've had a career of being in the academy and writing and ministering, doing campus ministry. Been at Denver Seminary now for 30 years. So uh, the life of an academic usually provides for a lot of time to research and write and teach. So I've tried to make the most of that over the years for the glory of God. Well, I'm excited to talk about this book, and I think that it's important. I, I talk about being intellectually curious, mm-hmm. and uh, the books that you write are really, I think, made or written for people that are intellectually curious. So a couple of other things I wanted to mention. Check out the website. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. That way you will get first look at our upcoming guests, as well as our most recent essays and podcasts. You can email me at Kim at Kim Munson.com. And thank you to all of you who support us. We are an independent voice, and we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, You should not have to force people to do it. And my friends, it's never compassionate to take other people's stuff, whether or not it's their rights, their property, freedom, livelihood, opportunity, or lives via force. And force could be a weapon, policy, unpredictable and excessive taxation, fear, coercion, government-induced inflation, or this agenda of the World Economic Forum, uh, the globalist elites. And again, uh, if something's a good idea, you should not have to force people to do it. In the spirit of the word of the day, uh, we have a word that I was not familiar with, and it is grok. It's a transitive verb, and it says, uh, number one, to have or to have acquired an intuitive understanding of or to know something without having to think, such as knowing the number of objects in a collection without needing to count them. Or number two, to fully and completely understand something in all its details and intricacies. So this is a word that producer Joe came up with, but you have a little history on this, Dr. Groteis. Yeah, I think it was invented by Robert Heinlein in a novel called Stranger in a Strange Land. And as a philosopher, it's an interesting idea because there's such a thing as intuitive knowledge, things we simply know without a lot of reflection or analysis. And there's a lot of our knowledge, though, that is based on observation and inference. But we know something simply through rational intuition, uh, like basic moral truths, that it's always wrong to torture the innocent for pleasure or love is better than hate, things like that. So it's an interesting idea. Uh, You have to be careful with this idea, though, because someone might claim to have this deep, infallible knowledge of something without giving an argument, and they're wrong. So, you know, a lot of people talk about my truth and your truth, and I just know it. They might even say I grokked it, you know. But 
as thinking beings, we really need to give an account for what we believe and why. So that idea of grokking uh, captures something in what's called epistemology, the theory of knowledge of rational insights that we know directly without argument or observation. But you have to keep those kind of minimal because if you multiply them, you can just start justifying all kinds of ideas about the world that may be unjustifiable and false. So it's kind of a fun word to play around with a little bit. Well, that's everyone's challenge is to yeah. use the word grok today that's right. uh-huh. in, in a sentence. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned something, and this has been a journey for me. Uh, I remember growing up, we heard, heard just kind of what you alluded to. I have my truth, you have your truth. And this was, I think, one of the beginnings of chipping away at the foundation of real mm-hmm. truth, because there is a real truth. Uh, and we're seeing that now play out in 2023 America and our world where people, there doesn't seem to be a foundation on some of these different issues out there. Well, it is foundational. I wrote a book many years ago called Truth Decay, and I was worried about the concept of truth losing its meaning and salience with people saying that truth is relative to communities or to races or to gender. And my argument there was that a statement is true as if it corresponds to reality, and you don't get to determine what is true. You could discover what's true. You could defend what's true. But truth is not pigmented. Truth is not uh, black or white or gray or brown or red or anything else. You know, a statement is true if it connects and matches and corresponds to reality. So it could be very simple, like I'm 66 years old, which is true. Uh, It could be something very profound, like the Bible is the Word of God. Well, defending the claim the Bible is the true and living Word of God will take more work intellectually and will be challenged, you know, more than uh, my statement that I'm 66, although I've been told I don't look a day over 64. (laughs) Um, So truth is important. You know, Jesus said, if you are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And if you know truth then you can align with reality and get your priorities right. If you're at war with the truth, then you're going to be fundamentally off base in everything that you do. So we can't relativize truth and say, well, this is my truth and you have your truth and they don't have to get along. Truth is one. So anything we know that's true in science or history or scripture or our experience has to agree with all the other truths. We don't just get to pick out our favorite little truths that empower us or make us feel good or are politically correct or woke or something. You know, we've got to try to penetrate to reality through reason and observation and intuition. And uh, I think a clear example is just because somebody feels that 2 plus 2 equals 5, it doesn't. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Well, I think you're a racist because, (laughs) believe it or not, there are people who say that basic mathematics and having a linear approach to life and being punctual and working hard are not universal values for responsible conduct and success, but actually are elements of this horrible, oppressive white supremacy. And that is so absurd. And it's also a recipe for failure to anybody who follows that. I mean, if you want to succeed in life, you need to be honest and punctual and learn math and learn grammar and get a decent education and so on. These are not pigmented. You know, these are just truths about life. And when you read the scriptures, we're told to 
be responsible people to tell the truth, to fear God, to love our neighbor. Uh, these are not optional things. You know, to be responsible, keep your promises, uh, be trained up in the truth of God, be disciplined and diligent in, diligent in your calling. So I, from way back, I've been really concerned that uh, we know what is true about the most important things. I think all my writing and all my books have been focused on that as, as best I can. Well, I'm talking with Dr. Douglas Grotice, and uh, I w- wanted to get to our quote of the day. We decided to choose C.S. Lewis, something from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he was born in 1898. He died in 1963, was a British writer, literary scholar, and Anglican lay theologian. He had academic positions in English literature at both Oxford University and Cambridge University. Uh, he's the author of all the tales of Narnia, as well as Mere Christianity, Tape Letters. I have to tell you, Dr. Grotice, when I read, for example, Tape Letters, I have to read it several times because mm. there's a lot in there. Well, he challenges your thinking, but always in a good way. Always in a good way. Yeah, I've been uh, reading him and teaching a class on him for many, many years. Okay, well, our quote of the day is this. He said, life with God is not immunity from difficulties, but peace and difficulties. And uh, so with that, uh, we're going to go to break here. We're going to talk, uh, continue the conversation with Dr. Douglas Grotice. But we get to do this show because of amazing sponsors. I know each and every one of them personally, and I highly recommend them. They strive for excellence. And one of those great sponsors is the Roger Mangan State Farm Insurance Team. And Roger wants you to feel uh, safe and well-served and to understand your insurance coverage and know that their office will respond to your call or text 24 hours a day. For that 24-hour peace of mind, call Roger Mangan at 303-795-8855. Like a good neighbor, Roger Mangan's team is there. Rosie's doing it. So is Yvonne. Same with Lori. Michelle's been at it since February of last year. Jody started the year before that. And guess what? They're all saving by doing so. What's that? Oh, the doing part? They're using the Drive Safe and Save app from State Farm. Then they're saving up to 30% and more on their auto insurance. How about you? Are you ready to get at it and save? Call Roger Mangan State Farm Insurance at 303-795-8855. Don't delay. Call Roger Mangan State Farm Insurance at 303-795-8855 today. There are always opportunities in changing markets, and the metro real estate market is no exception. That is why you need to work with seasoned REMAX Alliance realtor Karen Levine when you buy your home, sell your home, consider the opportunities of a new build, or explore investment properties. Rising interest rates are spurring creativity, innovation, and opportunity in the real estate and mortgage markets. Kim Munson highly recommends award-winning REMAX realtor Karen Levine. Call Karen Levine today at 303-877-7516 for answers to all your real estate questions. That's 303-877-7516. You'd like to get in touch with one of the sponsors of The Kim Monson Show, but you can't remember their phone contact or website information. Find a full list of advertising partners on Kim's website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim, M-O-N-S-O-N, dot com. It's Friday, yeah. And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. 
Sign up for our weekly email newsletter, and you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice, and we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you should not have to force people to do it. And uh, I have Dr. Douglas Grotheis in studio. We are pre-recording this, but I did want to give a shout out to the Center for American Values, which is located uh, in Pueblo, Colorado, on the beautiful Riverwalk. And they are focused on a couple of things. One of those is their Portraits of Valor, uh, honoring our Medal of Honor recipients, as well as then educational uh, programs for public uh, school educators, homeschool, as well as they just started a new online pro- uh, program for civics for K through 12, which is great for families, grandparents and parents to, uh, to work on that. And so you can get more information by going to AmericanValueCenter.org. That's AmericanValueCenter.org. Dr. Douglas Grotheis, your latest book, World Religions in Seven Sentences. Wow. That, this is a right. big topic. What a ridiculous idea. <laughs> <laughs> so let me give a little apologetic for this. I wrote a book, came out in 2016, called Philosophy in Seven Sentences. And the notion of this is that philosophers deal with ideas. So you can find books out there uh, with the pairing of numbers and objects about big topics like the history of the world in six glasses or you've probably seen those kind of books. So I thought, well, what what do philosophers have to deal with? They have ideas. They have sentences. So I thought maybe I could take representative sentences from philosophers like Aristotle, all men by nature desire to know, and make that an entry point into philosophical reflection in the pursuit of truth. So I wrote that book, and it came out, and InterVarsity, my publisher for these books, was interested in that, and they followed up, actually, with some other books. Uh, There's another one called um, The Old Testament in Seven Sentences, The New Testament in Seven Sentences, Christian History in Seven Sentences. So this is a follow-up to that, and it's not reductionistic. I'm not trying to dumb anything down, but it's rather what you would call a primer, an introduction, a first treatment of a topic. So what I did is I took six of the world's religions. I took uh, uh, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Christianity, and Islam, and I used a representative sentence. And then I started actually with the sentence from the, the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, God is dead. So he was irreligious. He didn't hold any religion. So I address his atheism and respond to some of his reasons for being an atheist. And then I look at these different religions through the lens of significant statements. So I'm not saying that you can reduce Judaism to one sentence. You can reduce Christianity or any of the other religions to one sentence. It's more like an entry point, like a first step into it. So that's the the MO of the book, okay. so to speak. Question, because I was uh, having lunch with a friend of mine recently, and I realized I did not give her a good explanation because I don't think I totally understand it. What is the difference between atheist and agnostic? Yes, an atheist is someone who denies that there is a God. That's putting it negatively. Putting it positively, atheists emphasize the natural world, the material world. So atheists are naturalists. They are not supernaturalists. 
C.S. Lewis has a very good discussion of this in the first chapters of his book, Miracles. An agnostic is someone who claims not to know. So it's from a word gnosis, which is Greek for knowledge, and then a, the negation, I don't know. So you can be agnostic about various topics because you feel you don't have an adequate basis of knowledge to make a decision about it. So an agnostic might also consider himself or herself a skeptic. That is, I have reasons to doubt the existence of God. Maybe there is a God, maybe there isn't. So this term was invented um, by, I believe it was uh, Julian Huxley, maybe about 120 years ago, maybe more recently. It's kind of a fallback for a lot of people. They'll say, well, I'm noncommittal on this subject. I can't positively claim to know there is no God. Neither do I affirm there is a God. But the functional result is you're not living to please and serve God, and you're not... uh, loving God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbors yourself, which Jesus said was the greatest commandment. So an agnostic, you know, could be what I call a soft agnostic. I don't know. Maybe I could know. Maybe there is a God. Maybe Christianity is true. Or a hard agnostic is in a worse place because the hard agnostic says, I don't know and nobody knows. It's an absolute ban of knowledge whether or not there is a God. And that's a very strong claim to make. And I think it's an unjustifiable claim to make because we have many good reasons to believe in the existence of God from science and philosophy and history and so on. So that's the basic difference. Okay. Uh, In my Christian faith, I've come up with uh, something that I've called the five R's. Now, if I I can remember that. And I, I think that actually it could be something that would be good for human relationships as well, but forgiveness is so important. Repentance is so important. So first of all, I mean, you look at everyone out there. Christ redeemed, went to the cross for everyone. Mm -hmm. I mean, I find that pretty remarkable as I walk around and see all of us were, you know, different sizes, shapes, colors, all that. And I I think actually, uh, Doug, that this, uh, this is foundational to the american idea as well when it goes in the in, when mm-hmm. jefferson says in the declaration that we're all created equal i mean i think those two things connect what do you think well they do and we could do a little comparative religion right here because i of course look at christianity and i use as the statement where jesus says before a- before abraham was i am so jesus is actually claiming to be divine he's going back to god's name in exodus 3 when god talks to moses and moses says what is your name And God says, I am who I am. And then recorded in John chapter 8, Jesus is in a dispute with religious leaders. And he says, uh, before Abraham existed, I am. And they know he's claiming to be God. That's a very strong claim. Uh, And then take... And they lost their minds on that one. They they? picked up stones to stone him. That was the end of the argument for them. And it wasn't his time to die. He had to go to the cross to atone for our sins. So he escaped. But let me bring up something that's kind of interesting about uh, we're all made in the image of God. Christ loves all of us. Anyone who comes to Christ on his terms can be redeemed. I recently heard a statement by Vivek Ramaswamy, who's running Mm -hmm. for president. And, of course, Vivek is a Hindu. He doesn't say, I came here uh, from an Indian background and became a Christian. I'm a Hindu. And his first line in his 
political platform is God is real. So he was asked, what are your spiritual beliefs? And he said, well, I'm a Hindu, and we're raising our children as Hindus. But I believe, as a Hindu, that all people are made in the image and likeness of God. I thought, oh, my. (laughs) Hinduism does not teach that. Uh, You won't find that in any Hindu scripture. That is in the Bible. That's in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, I think uh, Vivek is gleaning from his Catholic schooling. But it's very interesting. If you think about uh, the worldview that influenced the founders, it was certainly Christianity. Uh, Jefferson was not an Orthodox Christian. But you have this idea that there's one God, and God created us in his image and likeness, although the Declaration doesn't say image and likeness, but it says created us and given us certain inalienable rights, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which really means the pursuit of virtue. So that's assuming the equal value before God of all people. Right. That is a biblical view. It's a deeply American view in the Declaration. Although Hindus have religious freedom in our country, and they should, and I like a lot of things about Vivek, that is not a Hindu value. The Hindus have the caste system. There are four castes, and they're hierarchical, and then there's a group of people outside of the caste called the Dalits, who are even considered subhuman. So America has always had something we call civil religion, which is interesting to study. It's the idea that America is uniquely favored among the nations, and our leaders should know that. Our leaders should believe in God. They should have some kind of piety. They should be able to quote the Bible. They should be people of prayer. And they should be in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And now we have somebody running for president who is a self-confessed Hindu, and he has every right to do that with the First Amendment, freedom of religion. But he's trying to incorporate a Christian idea of the intrinsic, innate value of all human beings made in the image and likeness of God into his position, and good for him, but it's not a Hindu value. So those two things don't match up. They really don't, no. Huh. In your book, Hinduism is one of the religions. So what is the the sentence for Hinduism that you you have? Well, Hinduism is a very big tent, uh, and I go into the six pegs of the tent, so to speak. But one of the key statements of Hinduism is a statement called It's a little obscure. It's called you are that, or used to be translated as thou art that. And the notion is that everything is divine and everything is one. It's called non-dualism. So there's a dialogue in one of the Hindu scriptures called the Upanishads, and the point of the dialogue is to convince a young man that he is one with nature, he's one with other people, he's one with God. So this is a very strong distinction between the biblical teaching that there's an eternal creator and a dependent creation, the creator-creation distinction. We are creatures of God. This view, it's one type of Hinduism. It's one school of Hinduism called non-dualism. says, no, everything is a seamless oneness, and you find liberation spiritually by finding your own identity as divine. And there's a statement for this. It's called, Atman is Brahman. That's the way it's put in the Sanskrit, but it's often translated, thou art that. So it's not that you are distinct and separate from God or that you're really at odds with God because you've sinned against him. The answer is to go within and to find 
this universal spiritual presence within yourself. And this is right at the, the fountainhead of New Age spirituality in America. Right. That, that, uh, I did not uh, understand that correlation, but that's exactly what that, mm-hmm. that sounds like. I, I'm just going to toss this out. When I was younger, I, there was this term that you were going to go out and find yourself. Did you sure. ever hear oh, that? Sure. Oh, yeah. And I said that to my father, and he says, mm-hmm. what? That's <laughs> no. right. That generation. I remember my mother, too, saying, what, what is this find yourself stuff? <laughs> yeah, don't you know who you are? But uh, on this tradition... And it's one school of Hinduism called Advaita Vedanta. Uh, the truth and knowledge and everything you need is ultimately within yourself. And it's interesting, when Vivek was talking about his beliefs as a Hindu, he said one thing that was not true. Hinduism teaches we're all made in the image and likeness of God. doesn't teach that. But then he said God is within all of us, which is a teaching of Hinduism. Uh, if you're talking about non-dualistic Hinduism is not just that God is inside all of us. We all are divine. We all are God, and we have to shed the false self of being finite and limited and embrace the true self or the universal self. And this is a belief, of course, that is uh, certainly at odds with the biblical teaching. It's really at odds with common sense because we always make distinctions between ourselves and other people and ourselves and nature. And how is it that if we are actually one with this universal unlimited power that we so seldom feel it or experience it or live it out? It makes so much more sense to say that we are finite creatures of God. God built us with limits. And also we have violated our own conscience. We need to make our peace with God. We're not just fine the way we are. That's why God came in Christ was to reconcile us to himself. Oh, my gosh, this is fascinating. I'm talking with Dr. Douglas Grotice, and he has this new book out. It's only been out for a couple of weeks yeah, or so. Yeah, about two weeks. Uh, World Religions in Seven Sentences. And it's it doesn't look like a complicated read either. Well, yes and no. I think it's direct and, simple, and in a sense, uh, clear. It does take you into some deep waters. But when I write, if I take you into deep waters, we wade in step by step. Okay. <laughs> and I guess what I should mean is it's not volumes and volumes. No, it's only 150 pages. Yeah. Okay. Talk about thought-provoking. Uh, just uh, I'm thinking of all kinds of interesting dinner conversations that <laughs> one could have around this. And uh, we get to do this because of great sponsors. And one of those great sponsors is Johnny Stubbs Heating and Air Conditioning Services. If you are 62 or older, a reverse mortgage could be a great tool regarding retirement and estate planning. It is essential to understand the process. Lauren Levy with Polygon Financial Group has nearly 20 years in the mortgage industry and has the experience to answer your questions. Lauren understands that each financial transaction is personal. If you'd like to explore your options on a reverse mortgage, remodel your home, buy a rental property, or move, Call Lauren Levy at 303-880-8881. Licensed in 49 states, Kim Monson highly recommends Lauren Levy for all your mortgage needs. Call Lauren at 303-880-8881. All of Kim's sponsors are an inclusive partnership with Kim and are not affiliated with or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the Kim Munson Show and grow your business, contact Kim at her website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com.
Welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. You can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice. We search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. And my friends, as we are seeing the renaming of uh, mountains and military bases and taking down statues, it's now more important than ever that we help and support those that are raising the money for the remodel for the USMC Memorial Foundation out at 6th and Colfax. And you can do that by going to usmcmemorialfoundation.org. That's usmcmemorialfoundation.org. But it's a way to say thank you and recognize those that have given their lives or have been willing to give their lives for our freedom. So again, that is usmcmemorialfoundation.org. We're doing something extremely special because this is such a big subject. And so we've pre-recorded this uh, particular hour with Dr. Douglas Grotice. He is a Christian philosopher, a Christian uh, apologist, which that means in defense of. And his latest book, just out, hot off the press, is World Religions in Seven Sentences. So we've talked about Hinduism. Mm-hmm. What's the next one you'd like to talk about, Douglas? Well, it'd be good, I think, to go from Hinduism to Buddhism, because Buddhism follows Hinduism. And there was a man named Siddhartha Gautama, who was in pursuit of enlightenment, And the Buddhist tradition teaches that he discovered enlightenment, and he ended up veering away from certain ideas in Hinduism. He continued to believe in reincarnation and karma, but he believed that the central truth of life is that life is suffering. So the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism are, first, life is suffering, second, suffering is caused by craving, Suffering is alleviated by alleviating craving. And there's a path of discipline called the Eightfold Path that can lead you to detach from the things of the world and eventually leave this world entirely behind and attain a state called nirvana, which is not anything like the Christian view of the new heavens and the new earth or anything like the Islamic view of paradise. It's a place free of desire, free of suffering. The Buddhists have a hard time actually saying what it is, but it's not a person, place, or thing. So it's an interesting lead, you know, in your religion. The first point of your religion is life is suffering. And Buddhism has sometimes been called the ultimate no to existence. Now, this may sound strange to people because we hear so much about mindfulness now, which comes out of Buddhism. And the idea of mindfulness is to quiet and still the mind and properly direct the mind so that you're not anxious and you can become more loving and compassionate. Well, there may be some limited wisdom to that. But as a philosopher, what I want to do is get to the root of the religion. And the religion does not say, as Christianity says, that it's a good world that God created, but human beings fell into sin. We see that story in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And that God can redeem the world. Not just redeem your thinking, but redeem your body. So uh, I'm an Anglican, and we confess every week we believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe that because Christ came and lived for us and died for us and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, he will one day come back and raise the dead and judge and purge and restore the universe. It's a very hopeful 
uh, but also very gritty vision. You know, the world has fallen into sin so severely that it took God himself to come to redeem us in the person of Christ. But that redemption includes both the mind and the body and the universe. So if there were no God, I could see how Buddhism would be attractive in a sense because it says the world is just full of frustrations. You know, one way to put it is we have what we don't want and we don't have what we want. So we suffer. We get old. We get diseases. Our relationships go south. So one way of coping with this is just to stop caring so much, is Mm -hmm. to detach. So Buddhism is all about detaching and realizing that everything is impermanent. And so don't sink your life into things that are going to disappoint you. Well, that's a good lesson. But the biblical view of this, and you see this in the book of Ecclesiastes especially, is, yes, life under the sun is ephemeral. Things come and go. You're greeted with disappointment so often. But there is life above the sun, meaning God. So there is a God who will bring good and justice through history. But it is a world of impermanence and struggles and suffering. But there's a final meaning. So the end of the book of Ecclesiastes says that we should fear God and keep his commandments because God will bring all things into account. And then the fuller story of that we have in the rest of Scripture of the gospel message that God so loved the world he sent his only son that whoever believes on him might not perish but have everlasting life. So we can have the hope and the knowledge, the justified true belief of eternal life, getting right with God through Christ. And that is the biblical way of dealing with disappointments, suffering. So the Christian story is not life is suffering. The Christian story is God created a good world. The world fell into sin. We need to be reconciled to God through Christ. And there's redemption. And in fact, there's a a consummation. Uh, My first wife, Becky, passed away in 2018. And we had worked hard on our Christian worldview. I had defended the Christian worldview and written so many things about it. And I would often comfort Becky. She had a a very tragic form of dementia, and she knew she was going to die of it. She knew she was losing her mind. And we didn't try to pretend that this wasn't horrible, but neither did we say, well, everything's impermanent. We'll try to detach ourselves from the suffering and hope that when we die, we can attain nirvana and not have to be reincarnated again. You know, we went to Scripture. We went to Revelation 21, 22, new heavens and the new earth. This is after Christ comes again. And there's no curse, no tears, no suffering. And it's this wonderful image of a garden, a city, of beautiful restoration. And it's not just a happy thought to get you through a tough day. It's true. So if what we have in Scripture about the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus is true, we have tremendous historical evidence for that, then you can trust what Jesus said about the future. And he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And he is. And uh, Rebecca went went to be with the Lord in 2018. So suffering is really one of the key questions of human existence. And every worldview has to have some kind of response to suffering. The Buddhist view is we suffer, detach from it, and hope that eventually through spiritual discipline you can leave this 
wheel of suffering, or it's called the wheel of samsara. Mm-hmm. Life, death, more life, more death. Uh, Buddhism has some insights about consciousness and not investing overly in things that pass away. I have to give Buddhism credit for that. But as the uh, final story of what reality is and what human hope should be, it falls very short. Quick question. I, I think I've learned through my Christian faith that there is a difference between happy and joy. Mm-hmm. And what's your thoughts on that? Because I think you can be joyful even in suffering. Happy is more of a and something from the outside, I think, that might be happening. So what do you think about that, Doug? Right. Well, I, I think the words are used somewhat interchangeably in Scripture, but there's certainly uh, the reality that no matter how unpleasant your situation is, you can take heart that God loves you, God will work things out in the end. And even if you're confused and angry, you can bring that to God. And I've done a lot of writing and talk and speaking in, in my life on this idea of lament. And biblically, we can really pour out our heart before God, our anger, our confusion. And God doesn't reject us because we are questioning. There are about 60 psalms of lament out of the 150 psalms in the Hebrew Bible. And some of them are pretty raw, you know, pretty gritty. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jesus himself in John 11, when he's at the grave of his friend Lazarus, Jesus was greatly moved in his spirit that Lazarus had died and people were suffering. And he also wept. So he was very connected. He was very involved. He wasn't detached at all. Right. And he was so attached that he grieved and felt frustrated, in a sense, at death. But then he raised Lazarus from the dead, supernaturally. You know, Lazarus come forth. And you compare that story with Buddhism, it's so different. In fact, there's a Buddhist story that I mentioned in the book of where a woman lost her son, and she couldn't give him up. She carried around the dead body with her. It's a sad story. And she went to Buddha for consolation. And the Buddha said, go to every house in the village and ask if there's a house that has not been troubled by death. So, of course, she goes to every house. Every house has had loss and death. And so she comes back to the Buddha and learns her lesson. Everything is impermanent. Everything dies. She buries, well, she gives her child up to be cremated and follows the Buddha. Now compare that story with Jesus, the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. He rises again from the dead and and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes on me, though he die, yet shall he live again. We have two totally different approaches to life. And it's not just, well, pick the one that seems to work for you. We have really strong reason and evidence and argument to believe the biblical stories. Oh, this is absolutely fascinating. I'm talking with Dr. Douglas Groteis uh, about his most recent book of 19 books, but just hot off the press, World Religions in Seven Sentences. We have these discussions because of sponsors like John Boson and Boson Law. Boson Law is a local law firm dedicated to helping injured individuals in Denver and the surrounding areas fight for the justice they deserve. Boson Law focuses on personalized representation tailored to your unique situation with one-on-one attention and counsel and consistent communication. 
Boson Law personal injury attorneys have extensive trial experience and have successfully represented clients against the interests of powerful corporations, manufacturers, insurance companies, and government agencies. Contact Boson Law at 303-999-9999 for a complimentary in-person consultation. Again, that number is 303-999-9999. Call now at 303-999-9999. Focused and wise marketing is essential for your success, especially during tough economic times. If you love the Kim Munson Show, strive for excellence and understand the importance of engaging in the battle of ideas that is raging in America. Then talk with Kim about partnership, sponsorship opportunities. Email Kim at KimMunson.com. Kim focuses on creating relationships with individuals and businesses that are tops in their fields. So they are the trusted experts listeners turn to when looking for products or services. Kim personally endorses each of her sponsors. Again, reach out to Kim at KimMunson.com. Springtown Firearms staff and customers alike are concerned with your safety and ability to shoot well, and that comes from the sense of community that they foster at their shop. The staff doesn't work on commissions from sales, so there won't be any pressure to buy what you don't need. They host events like Ladies' Night every first Friday and a Tactical Fun Night every third Friday because they value their community and they understand that selling the most expensive product doesn't help you learn to shoot. Your money goes further at Franktown because they'd rather you to be self-sufficient with what you already own and be proficient in using it. If you're looking for a range and shop that can take you to the next level in your self-defense training, learn how to shoot in realistic scenarios from instructors who have been there, done that. Then look no further than Franktown Firearms. Go to klzradio.com slash franktown. Franktown Firearms, where friends are made. Welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter, and you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. Uh, we did something very special for this hour. We pre-recorded this with Dr. Douglas Groteis regarding his latest book, World Religions in Seven Sentences. It's not a long book, but I think there's a lot in it. Uh, so we've talked about Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism. What's the next religion that we should talk about, Douglas? Well, I think it'd be good to talk about Taoism. And the statement I have from Taoism is that the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao, which is taken from one of the principal texts of Taoism called the Tao Te Ching, uh, written by a rather shadowy figure called Lao Tzu. And the reason I included Taoism is not because it's one of the most popular religions uh, globally, the numbers of Taoists are far beyond, excuse me, far beneath Christianity, Islam, uh, Hinduism, and Buddhism. But the reason I did is because this idea that the ultimate reality is beyond words and beyond concepts is often heard. And whether or not someone is a Taoist, they may resonate or agree with this idea that the way the Tao basically means the way. And how do, how do you spell that? Uh, it's sometimes spelled T A O. Uh, more recently, it tends to be spelled with a D D A O. Okay. It's a you know it's a Chinese word that okay. I could not pronounce properly. 
So the older translations of the Tao Te Ching will use a T. The newer ones use a D. But it's a book called the Tao Te Ching, which is a collection of aphorisms and epigrams. It's not really a story. It's not like reading the Bible. But this idea that I wanted to work with uh, is called uh, the ineffability claim. And if something is ineffable, it means that it cannot be represented in words or logic. It's somehow beyond them. So when people talk about religion and the ultimate reality, they will often say that this is beyond reason, beyond really rational discussion. But you somehow can intuit this. Uh, And I really go to town on that. (laughs) I'm an analytic philosopher, and a lot of my trainings was with a philosopher of religion named Keith Yandel. And uh, he spent a lot of work on this idea. Now, if you say the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao, it seems like you've already contradicted yourself, right? Because you just uttered a sentence about what cannot be uttered. Now, if you mean that the Tao or the way or the ultimate reality is not the same as statements about it, well, that's a truism. You know, I'm not the same as the statement Doug Rothheis exists. It's got to mean something more than that. But it represents in religion a kind of irrational orientation that if you're talking about the way of life, words will always fail, and it's more a matter of somehow just resonating with reality, intuiting reality, uh, not really subjecting truth claims to rational analysis. And I think that's a very bad idea. Uh, And if you compare, for example... This Taoist idea, the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao, with biblical religion. So when I look at Judaism, the statement I take is from Exodus 3.14, where God says, my name is, I am who I am. And God is in a conversation with Moses. He's selected Moses to be the liberator and the lawgiver. And Moses is having a conversation with God. And he has the audacity to ask God his name. And God tells him his name and then makes predictions that Moses will be used by God to liberate God's children from Egypt. So there's a conversation with God. Now, if this was a Taoist account, there's no conversation with God. There's no clear reference to a creator in relation to creation in Taoism. There are a few kind of shadowy statements in there, but it's not direct. It's not straightforward. It's not clear. And the idea that the Tao Te Ching is somehow a rational revelation from God is not on offer. It's just not possible. So I think about who we are as human beings. We we communicate. You and I are talking. We use words. We have a shared vocabulary. We have shared humanity. And so much of human existence is about communication through words, whether they're spoken or written or symbols that we use. And one of the the most compelling aspects of a biblical worldview is that God is a God who speaks. He spoke things into existence. God said there shall be light and there was light. And God created us, we know from Genesis 1, in our image, in his image and likeness. And that means we have the ability to think, to reason, to relate, to create. 
And so God is a speaking God, and he speaks to people who can hear. You know, at least if we, as Jesus said, have ears to hear and, and eyes to see, we can perceive what God has communicated in nature and scripture. So we don't have to deny our intellect or, as you said earlier, deny our intellectual curiosity or say that the ultimate reality is uh, based on some kind of non-rational experience. So I find that the Taoist approach to be very intellectually unsatisfying. You'll find a few quips in Taoism that you can resonate, actually, if you have conservative political leanings. There are a few statements in Taoism about uh, the the lack of wisdom in big government and so on. You can find some nice statements here and there in Taoism. But this idea that the ultimate reality, the religious truth, is beyond words, is, I think, self-defeating because you're using words to say it, and then it simply cuts off who God is and what God has said and what he's done in history. So we need knowledge to live well in everything, in economics, in medicine, in politics, and we more than anything need the knowledge of God because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So we don't want to just be lost in mystical sayings in our life. We need direction. We need to know who God is, the Ten Commandments, the gospel, the way of salvation. Uh, What does love mean? We need to know these things. And Taoism, as a philosophy of life, cuts that out. It denies the knowledge of the ultimate reality and substitutes these epigrams, aphorisms, uh, instead of really being a revelation, a rational, intelligible revelation from God. It just doesn't have that as a category. Okay, we've got just uh, a couple of minutes left. So what, how do you want to finish this up regarding your, your latest book here? Right. Well, it's both an introduction to world religions, and it's also a running argument for the truth of the biblical worldview. Uh, A couple of reviewers have said, well, you're pretending it's some kind of objective treatment, but you're really arguing for Christianity. Hey, you can do both. You can say what the religions teach. You can critique them logically. You can compare those other religions to Christianity and say, I've made an argument for the truth, rationality, and pertinence for Christianity in conversation with other worldviews. So, Tell me what you think. Yes, I have a perspective. I'm a committed follower of Christ, have been for 47 years, and I'm also a philosopher of religion who knows something about world religions. So this is a ongoing assessment of some of the world's religions with a logical critique and with a comparison of the different religions to Christianity, and I believe and argue that Christianity is rationally superior and existentially more pertinent to life. So uh, I would love people to read it with an open mind, see if my arguments make any sense. And I hope that Christians will read it because we live in a pluralistic world. Mm -hmm. You're going to be talking to Buddhists and Hindus and so on. We didn't talk about Islam, I think, at all, but as a major religion, we need to understand. And some people say, well, 
Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all based on the faith of Abraham, so we're Abrahamic faiths, so let's not get fussy about the differences <laughs> among them. No, we need to, because there are differences. And in fact, Islam claims to be the successor of Christianity and Judaism, and that's something Christians need to challenge, which I do in the book. Well, and the book is World Religions in Seven Sentences by Dr. Douglas Groteis. It seems to me like this would be a great book for book clubs and some great discussion on that. So, Douglas, it's been great having you in studio. Thank you so much. And our quote for the end of the show is C.S. Lewis. He says this, Once people stop believing in God, the problem is not that they will believe in nothing. Rather, the problem is that they will believe in anything. So my friends today, be grateful, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. My friends, you are not alone. God bless you, and God bless America. And I don't want no one to cry, but tell them if I don't survive. and opinions expressed on KLZ 560 are those of the speaker, commentators, hosts, their guests, and callers. They are not necessarily the views and opinions of Crawford Broadcasting or KLZ Management, employees, associates, or advertisers. KLZ 560 is a Crawford Broadcasting God and Country Station.